from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and today we're going to do one of those shows where we take something little, something insignificant, and show how much there is in it, as if we were looking at a droplet of water and seeing all the disgusting little creatures that are floating around. And where we're going to begin is with something like this. This is Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods. This is 1987. I saw it in previews. And here is the witch singing what's popularly known as the witch's rap from the first number. And listen to some of these vegetables. Greens of nothing but greens, parsley, peppers, cabbages, and celery, asparagus, and watercress, and vinegars, and lettuce. He said, all right, but it wasn't quite, because I caught him in the autumn in my garden one night. He was robbing me, raping me, rooting through my rutabaga, raiding my arugula, ripping up the rampy and my champy and my paper, and I should have let a spell on him right there. I had not heard of arugula or rampion until then. The foodie revolution hadn't happened to the extent that it would soon in 1987. Nobody gave me any arugula when I was growing up. That was my first time. Or here's another example. Um, My Aunt Amy Olson says that this is the first time she heard the word ablutions. This is a bit from Sweeney Todd. Personal disorder cannot be ignored. Given their genteel proclivities Meaning no offense It happens they resent it Ladies in their sensitivities My lord Stubble, you say? Perhaps at times I am a little over-hasty With my morning ablutions Okay, well, another example of this is this from Seesaw. This is Cy Coleman's music and Dorothy Field's lyrics. It is 1971. I wouldn't recommend listening to the original cast album of Seesaw. It isn't done for a reason. But listen to this bit of one of the songs. This is Michelle Lee singing. Here is a hug from your horny receptionist. Welcome to Holiday Inn. If you want a cup of coffee, if you want a piece of Danish, I'll be ready, I'll be waiting in the hall. And regardless of the hour, should you need a wake-up call, 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 call. We got people going in and out, you know what I mean, but you're the greatest looking transient I've ever seen. So here's a hello from your sexy receptionist, one big hello from your red-hot receptionist. Welcome to Holiday Inn. Transient. This is the first time I ever heard, and maybe the last time, I heard that word transient, and it kind of sticks out. What is that word transient? Well, Technically, we might say originally the word is transient, a person who's just going through. And you know, that word transient is very rich. We're going to do transient of all things. There's a lot in transient that teaches us what language is all about. What is transient? Well, it's from trans, which is across or through, 
metaphorically. Then e is ire, that is to go. So we're talking about Latin words, trans, and then ire, to go. So to go across, go through. And then ent, as in whoever is doing this going across or going through. So trans, ire, and ent. Trans, e, ent. And those elements come together and become transient. And so that's where that word comes from. But what does all that mean? One thing that a lot of you are probably thinking is, why transient? Like if the word is transient, that's the way a lot of us would maybe spontaneously pronounce it if we saw it written down. Why do people say transient? What we're often thinking is it's wrong to say transient or there's something sloppy about it, but it's quite normal and it exemplifies actually the exact thing that helped make French out of Latin. And French is so elegant, even if a transient in this meaning isn't necessarily. Why do people say transient? The answer, well, it doesn't sound very exciting, although I find it interesting. I have to give you a bit of jargon. It's called palatalization. Palatalization makes the difference between transient and transient and then eventually transient. What palatalization is, is something that happens to sounds often when there is something high and front in the mouth going on, or maybe even high and back. For example, let's say that you are speaking Latin. Remember Latin from last week and we heard about the, the vulgar kind? Let's say that you're talking about something like a castle, and so you say costellum. Okay. In French, that word has come out as chateau. So castellum becomes chateau. How did que become ch? What happened is that que first changed just randomly into que. So instead of saying castellum in real vulgar Latin, as opposed to that uh, uh, version that we talked about last time, castellum became castellum. That's just something that can happen. Well, if you say que, enough that after a while you're saying que. And if you say che enough, then you're saying sh. And after a while you're saying sh. And so castellum becomes chateau. That's good old palatalization. The same thing that makes transient become transient. You've got that e coming up and so the consonant moves towards it and you end up with a sh instead of a s. And it's interesting, it can happen or it might not. And so, for example, chateau is Parisian French, but we also have the word castle. That's from Castellum too. We got that from a different brand of French, Norman French, i.e. the French that was brought over by the invaders after the Battle of Hastings. They said Castellum, or the French equivalent, and so they didn't have chateau. They didn't have Castellum. So, we have two words from Castellum. One of them is the original from Norman French, and that's castle. Then we borrowed from another flavor of French later where it had become chateau. You never know how these things are going to go. So palatalization is a regular thing. It's not just with some strange word like transient. So for example, issue. If you ever listen to British people say issue, do you notice that they tend to say issue, issue? And you think, oh, that's cute. They're British. No, it's that they don't happen to palatalize the word the way we do. You've got an oo coming up. Oo is high too. Notice e oo, e oo. They don't feel related, but those are high in the mouth as opposed to e o e o. You have to go down to pronounce those e oo. So issue. You just know that issue in some dialects at least is going to be issue. It wants to be that. If somebody's not saying issue, it's because really the printed page is holding them back from doing what comes naturally. So 
issue. That's palatalization. Castellum to chateau. That's palatalization. Transient to transient. Transient. That's palatalization. That is why people say transient, which can sound kind of odd. It's what the word transient wants to do. What would be strange is if people didn't start pronouncing it as transient after a while. But it's interesting. The palatalization ends up creating a kind of Cheshire cat smile effect. In that, remember, we're talking trans across, e to go, and ent, the person doing it. Well, if you say transient, then the e itself is gone. Transient. There's no trace of that verb go in it at all, except for the fact that the s became a je. It's kind of like if somebody with a big afro puts on headphones and then they take the headphones off and there's the imprint of the headphones in their hair. That's the only way you know that they put on headphones. In the same way, transient becomes transient and there's no more e, even though the word started out as a combination of across, go, and er. Notice also transient and then issue. Issue starts out in Latin as ex Ire, that's out, go, you know, the going out, the issue. Okay, so ex ire. Ire is that same verb. So trans ire ent and ex ire. That means that transient and issue have the same bit in them. You would never know. They're pronounced differently now. They're spelled completely differently. But if you say transient and you say issue, you are putting in your mouth the same Latin word different outcomes of it, different issues of it, so to speak. And that's really something else about how language works. There's so much that we say on the fly that is just chunks. It doesn't have meaning anymore. It's just the stuff that we say. They are called, and I've discussed this on another show, but, you know, it's so interesting that I'm going to bring it up again. It's cranberry morphemes, and they're called that because, you know, what's a cran? You know, do cranberries have anything to do with cranes? Maybe, but you can tell that it's forced, and we're just kind of stuck with it, the cranberry. So, we know what a berry is, but a cran, well, too bad. There are all sorts of things like that. So, for example, let us transmit the message. Let us submit to authority. Please remit the money that you owe us. We know what transmit, submit, and remit mean, but what the hell is mit? Now, if you think about it, or if you have some Latin, then you know that mit means to send, but we don't talk about mitting a letter. We don't have mit. And so it ends up being a cranberry morpheme. Or, for example, transit, rapid transit, beep, okay, exit. So you're going out. Transit, exit. What's it? It certainly isn't the pronoun it. It's not like you're transing that thing or exing that thing. Transit, exit. What's it? Well, actually, once again, it's this go verb. It's this ire, the various forms that it takes. Well, we don't have an it. So that ends up being a cranberry morpheme. We know what the trans is. You have a sense of what x is. But the it, well, you just have to belch that out and move on. Or, for example, here's a hello from your friendly receptionist, sep. What's sept? You know, re, okay. Unist, you can kind of figure out what that means. What's the septing? Now, there is deception. There is inception. That movie I have never gotten around to. I've got to get to it. I can tell it's not as good as people said. But except what is sept? Well, it's a cranberry morpheme, this thing that's about <laughs> receiving. Receptionist, deception, inception, 
except. So we have lots and lots of these cranberry morphemes in our speech. We think you say a word and you know what it means, or you put two chunks together and they end up meaning something else, but you know what the chunks mean. So there's hunt and there's er. A hunter is somebody who hunts. Okay, but actually it's more complicated than that because we have all these cranberries just kind of sitting around, and yet we say them. They're kind of like junk DNA. That's a very rough analogy. And why do we have them? Well, it's because, to a large extent, of our having such a bastard vocabulary. For example, this mit and the it and the sept. All of that is Latin. Those are Latin chunks. English has an awful lot of words that are not English. They're taken from Latin, as well as French and Old Norse. And the truth is, we're often told that English is unique in having such a bastard vocabulary, or at least unusual. That there's something interesting about it. Truth is, that's quite common around the world. You know, Japanese is spilling over with Chinese. Urdu is spilling over with Persian, as is Turkish. It's actually quite common to have a bastard vocabulary. English, though, does have a more bastard vocabulary than any of the languages that are closely related to it, and that means that we have a lot. Of cranberries, it just kind of happens. Remember, there was what igneous rock, and metamorphic rock, and sedimentary rock. And sedimentary was from sediments, and so you have all this powder, all these different rocks that are all mixed together. Often is the sedimentary rock. It's like sedimentary rock, a language. It's like bubblegum rock. I'm doing a transition. I figure this time everything is going to sound like "Welcome to Holiday Inn" because I like that sound where you. Imagine probably a female person in a certain kind of skirt with her arms stuck out doing that Watusi dance. We're going to do that late '60s, early '70s era. And what I'm thinking, frankly, is the theme song to Love American Style, a truly awful show that is an invaluable time capsule to what mainstream censored American entertainment gave to the public as a version of hipness. I highly recommend watching one episode or the whole first season, as I once did when I had less to do. But the theme song was deathless, and you know, just because we're talking about sedimentary rock, here it is. <laughs> that good? You want to see Vivian Vance and Broderick Crawford and Ann Southern doing their final work? Take a look at Love, American Style. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Something else about transient. I have to tell you that it's trans 
an ere, an ent. You have to be told because we have such a bastard vocabulary. Not all languages are like that. You wouldn't need to be told as much in, for example, German. A language that you can think of as normal, in a way, has mostly its own words. And so there have been people who wished that English was that way. And I get what they mean in terms of wanting to have all your ducks in a row. And they have you know, proposed that English actually have its own rootstock instead of being so very mixed. I once knew somebody, actually, I'm going to bring up Romanian again. Um, for one thing, I'm going to say that the word for key does not begin with a sh, it begins with a k, as I was told by a Romanian who wrote into me. I'm sorry about that, folks. You know, like Bucharest, I just forgot as I was running my mouth here in the booth. But I once told a Romanian I knew that her language had a lot of Slavic words in it. And she said, I'm not going to say exactly how she put it, but she said that it disturbed her that it seemed that her language had at some point been of easy virtue, as they used to call it. And I kind of know what she means. You want it to be pure. And John Cheek felt this way. He was a Greek specialist. It's 1557. And he presented all of these genuine English words to replace ones that we get from other languages such as Latin. So he said, why do we call it crucify? Why don't we just say that somebody was not crucified, but crossed? Instead of fundamental, why don't we say ground wrought? Instead of calling somebody a prophet, what's a prof? What's a fit? What's that? Why not call it a foresayer? That's kind of cute. There's a guy named Ralph Lever who had a similar idea. His were even better. A definition should be a say what. I like that. Like a say what? That's good. Or a conclusion. Call it an end say. Therefore, we have a pure language. This kept going. There was a guy in the 19th century, William Barnes, who had these beautiful ideas. Instead of calling something fragile, you know, with this fragilis word from Latin, breaksome. That's nice. Or obedience could be hearsomeness instead of this obedient. To be ignorant, you're loreless. And my favorite for him grammar was speechcraft. Call it speechcraft. Okay, so yeah, English would be a purer language. Although, you know, if we got what we wished for, there would still be the opacity. Words meanings have a way of drifting away from what they originally were. So for example, let's listen to our seesaw song from the beginning. Just a bit of it here. Here's a hello from your friendly receptionist. Welcome to Holiday Inn. Do you need a broad or a good psychoanalyst? Maybe a tonic and gin. There's no Gideon Bible next to the bed. Could you read the yellow pages instead? Here is a kiss from your friendly receptionist. Welcome to Holiday Inn. Before the whole bit with transient, it's welcome to Holiday Inn. Okay. Welcome and holiday, those are native Old English people killing each other in Old England words. Welcome and holiday. Notice that they're opaque. You don't think about welcome being welcome. You know intellectually, but you're not thinking it. Pronunciation messes it up. We just think of it as welcome. It might as well be spelled W-E-L-K-U-M. Holiday, do you think of it as a holy day? I don't. I think of it as a hot dog. 
holiday, I think of a frankfurter. That's what a holiday is. I don't think of it as being a holy day because, frankly, usually it isn't, and I'm not a very holy person. And so even if we did have a native rootstock, we still would have to think about where words came from, especially because pronunciation screws things up. Breakfast. Is it really breaking a fast? Let's face it, no. Cupboard, cupboard only because of the spelling do we even know. So we would still have a mess of a language. But certainly there are times when you kind of wish everything were more orderly. It's interesting. I, um, for reasons I will not bore you with, I'm reading an interminable biography of Winston Churchill right now. This book just goes on and on. You could kill a child by dropping this book on somebody. It just never stops. I'm in the middle. I'm on page 500 of a thousand. The man is 64. <laughs> there are 500 pages to go. You could tell they're going to chronicle every gunshot of World War II and every time that man went to the bathroom. But he made a speech in 1940, and it's the We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech. And it's famous for using almost only the English rootstock. And there's something to it. The word surrender is not English, and also street is originally from Latin, as English as it seems. But let's listen to Churchill delivering it. He came from a time when being eloquent and making speeches was actually part of being an effective politician. What in the world happened to that? But here he is on the beaches. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Or one more example of how there are certain advantages to using your rootstock, even if it's just kind of aesthetic. This is, to go back to our Watusi era, this is Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. Yes, they did do a musical, and yes, it was called Golden Rainbow, and yes, it was horrible. However, the music was deathlessly catchy, and the catchiest song in it was called For Once in Your Life. Listen to the lyric, For Once in Your Life, that's, that's English, but notice how the lyric kind of goes off the rails with the words persuasiveness and evasiveness. They, they rhyme, but they are not... English, they don't sound genuine. You can tell Walter Marks was just looking for a rhyme. Walter Marks, you, you do great work. But on that one, I can tell that you were out of cigarettes or something. So listen to For Once in Your Life. It's Frankly, it's just a cute song. Lady, forget rhyme or reason. For once in your life, don't do what's right. Do what's pleasing for once in your life. Just forget your intellectual alibi and spread your wings, and I suspect you will soon be flying. Can't you take no for an answer for once in your life? Don't be a corny romancer for once in your life. I'm in tune to your evasiveness. I'm immune to your 
Trust in me for once in your life. Something else about transient and what it gets you to thinking about. There is something that doesn't usually happen in language, but nevertheless, it does happen. And if you're a linguist, you always think of it as one of those, the rock is rolling backwards or the film is going back sorts of things. It's just interesting. So for example, somebody will ask you, um, well, all right, you did it. Was she angry? And your answer might be ish. And what you mean is angry-ish. This is not the old radio-ish that we've been through. This is today's modern-ish. You know, something like, well, there was that food fair where they had all the different kinds of pickles and the special calamari. Did you find it educational? And somebody might say, ish. That's interesting because ish is supposed to be this little suffix. And lately, we can use it by itself to mean a little, to mean somewhat. That is the reverse of the way things are supposed to go. So ish would have started out as some full word, as we talked about on a previous podcast, and then it becomes a little suffix, just kind of sucking on. And that's where the story is supposed to end. The idea that the suffix can then come free and start floating around and becoming a new word, that doesn't happen much. It's called degrammaticalization. So by way of review, today you've learned what palatalization is, and you've learned what degrammaticalization is. It sounds like somebody getting hung from a pole in 1400. But actually, degrammaticalization is when something has become a bit of grammar and then becomes an actual word again. Trans is doing that lately. Notice that we can say that someone is trans. Well, that's supposed to be a prefix, but the prefix has come free and become a brand new word. That is not what you expect. It's a kind of wordplay often, or it's just that sometimes things go differently than you expect. So transient is originally transient, and trans these days is a whole new word that was a prefix just 10 minutes ago. You know, another example of that actually is, here's a hello from your friendly receptionist. Welcome to Holiday Inn. Where does inn come from? And you're thinking, well, there must have been some word in Old English like inich, or there was some Latin word inium or something like that. But no, it's just from inn, as in being in a sandwich or something like that. You're inside. An inn is an inn thing. That's what it is. And so inn It's a piece of grammar. You're in the sandwich, you're in the house, you're in the mix. But if you're at Holiday Inn, well, it's an inn as in you're going to sleep in instead of out. So you never know when these things are going to happen. So was it educational? Ish. Or she's a trans person. Or welcome to Holiday Inn. All three of those things are examples of the same phenomenon. And while we're talking about inn, this song was in promises promises in 1968 this is half as big as life and folks you know who this is singing this is jerry orbach everybody loves jerry orbach you think of law and order he could sing this is the young jerry orbach and notice how at the end of the song he hits a high note and it doesn't sound forced or fey or strange that is something that not all male singers can do sinatra was good at it listen to how jerry orbach not only walked around talking under his breath on law and order but listen to how when he was young he could sing half as big as life Be 
about this kind of detritus that you find in language. It's all about history, really. And you can analyze almost anything in this way. There are always little bits of stuff that have meaning that you wouldn't expect. You have to parse it out. I think of actually, I was at a cute hotel a few weeks ago. It was, I have no reason to hide it. It was in Palo Alto. It was the Cardinal Hotel. And they had a menu from their restaurant framed from 1936. So you just know that I want to know, well, what did people eat on January 16th? The menu apparently was different every day. January 16th, 1936, what did Mr. and Mrs. America eat? And there were all sorts of things on this menu that were fascinating. Before dinner, one thing that you could have was a pineapple and fig salad. Why the fuck would anybody want to eat that? But that was there. There was something called an olive nut sandwich. It's olive nut. Or there were no hot dogs, nor frankfurters. Apparently, I'm getting the feeling that in 1936, you got your hot dogs on the street. You didn't have a hot dog in a restaurant, not even for the kid plate. And they did have a kid plate, but no hot dog, no frankfurters, no french fries. That is not mentioned anywhere, even as an extra. People were not eating french fried potatoes. They were eating potatoes, but not french fried potatoes. That did not exist yet. A burger. You'd think on a menu like this that there would be seven or eight burgers. No, they have various sandwiches, including this olive nut sandwich. And then under olive nut is a hamburger sandwich. So that was not a big deal. People weren't used to that yet. But the interesting thing was everything on this menu was spelled correctly, except broccoli. Broccoli is the one thing they misspell. Why? It's a little bit of stuff. It's one of those things. They misspelled broccoli because broccoli was new to most Americans in the 1930s. Broccoli came from Italians. In 1925, you did not have to pretend you liked broccoli. It started coming in in the 30s. Not surprising then that when they put together this menu and they're oh so proper with their olive nut, pineapple and fig salad, the one thing they misspell is broccoli because they're not used to it and they probably didn't sell much of it. In any case, I'm leading up to some which is the year after that, 1937. Suppose you're looking at one of the early Looney Tunes, not the ones we're used to, but where they're still kind of getting their sea legs. One of the best of the early era is called Little Red Walking Hood. And in it, and Mike, if you could start playing the scene, the wolf is chasing the grandmother through the house and they're kind of having fun doing it. And then she jumps up on a chair and she says, And then she makes a phone call, and this is what she asks for on the phone. Let me see now. One dozen eggs. It's the grocer, folks. A pound of butter. One head of lettuce. A can of peas. Oh, come on, Grandma. Squash, a lemon pie and a, a case of gin. Goodbye. <laughs> and then they kind of keep going. But wait a minute. What did she say when she gets up on the chair and stops everything? Play it again, please, Mike. King's X. King's X? King's X? What's that? I've 
seen this cartoon for most of my life and I never really quite understood why does she say King's X? What is she saying up there? And then the cartoon keeps going. Get this. King's X is what people said for time out in the 30s and 40s and before. Time out only came in in the 50s and it's completely wiped away King's X. But if you went back to the 30s and you wanted to pass as a 30s person, if you started playing tag with some people for some reason, if that's all there was to do because there was no internet, then if you got tired and you said time out, you would reveal yourself and they would probably have you shot and killed because you it would be clear that you were from some other time. There was no time out. You said King's X. So if you decided to be one of the little rascals and you're playing a game, then at certain point, you're not supposed to say, ah, shucks, time out. Nobody said that. It's ah, shucks, King's X. Remember that. That's the sort of detritus that there is in any case. English is full. You know you wanted to know that. English is full of King's X's. The story of this language, and I'm on the verge of Signing a contract to write about this because the story needs to be told. The story of English is more interesting than just that we got a whole lot of words from Old Norse and then French and then Latin. English comes to England because some basically Vikings were pressured by population growth. And so they crossed the English Channel. And then about 10 minutes after that, Norsemen, who are basically the same people speaking a very similar language, come across the Channel and take over for pretty much the same reason. They establish what's basically a, a northern sea empire at that time. We don't think of it that way, but that's what it was, both sides of the channel. Latin comes into the language because of printing and the Reformation, and suddenly you have words like transient, and then we distort them via sound change into something familiar as an old shoe like transient. That's the story of English. A lot of it, talking about trans, it's like gene transfer. It's like the mitochondria in the cell used to be free-floating bacteria, and now they're in there, or there's all this gene transfer, and so the whole tree of life is really just a massive, messy, it's like an afro. It's a bush. That's English, and that's language, and that's just amazing to me. One more time with here's a hello. You're going to be humming it all day. And, you know, also amazing to me is the stuff that we get in the mail. Somebody sent me a crossword game from the dawn of time. Thank you very much for that. I have yet to curl up with it, but I can't wait to do it. And for reasons I will not bore you with, just like I won't tell you why I have to get through that Churchill biography, I'm not going to tell you why I lost the address of the person, but thank you to whoever that was. And also, let's always remember that now Lexicon Valley has a Slate Plus segment. You sign up for Slate Plus and you spend a small amount of money, and as a result, you get nice extra tidbits in addition to what I discuss in the body of the episode. You don't have to listen to me or anybody else doing any ads and you can't find it online. It's not bootlegged. You can't trade these extra little five minute segments. You have to pay a little bit of money, but then you become a Slate Plus member and it won't only be me. It'll be all of our fine podcasts and many people have already done this. Thank you folks and some of them have actually said that Lexicon Valley was their favorite podcast and so here is a shout out to Daniel Cordoba from Miami Beach. Thank you, Daniel. Candace from Rye, New York. You know, I used to go through Rye a lot when I taught for about 10 minutes at Cornell. I remember it well. There was a bridge in it. And Keith from Winnetka, Illinois. I doubt if I'll ever get to Winnetka, but Keith, 
Thank you very much for signing up for Slate Plus and saying that you actually like this show that I somehow do. You've heard enough of Welcome to Holiday and Let's not go out on that. Let's do more of that style, though. Let's do... This is Trini Lopez singing Made in Paris in 1966. This is a Bacharach song. Myra Joyce, you're listening. I'll bet you like this song. And I have always loved it. Made in Paris, it just speaks for itself. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. That menu, I can't stop thinking about it. Under dessert, it said butterhorn or snail. (laughs) What was that? I really don't know what they mean. Or at one point they say hot meat sandwich. They don't say what kind of meat. Various meats are discussed on the menu, but at one point, for a sandwich, hot meat sandwich, what kind of meat? These are my transient musings. In any case, Mike Volo is the editor, as always, and I am John McWhorter. Just being made in Paris You don't know how to speak French You'll understand Love is made in Paris Every night Shine, go get yours. I've got 